This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital work from anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360 degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business. G'day guys and welcome to Talking to Trailblazers. I'm Jack Corbett in association with Business News Australia and today I am over the moon to have the opportunity to have someone join us who has truly completed the entrepreneurial process. Not only started, grown, but then went on and sold their organization. So has an amazing amount of experience that they're going to be able to share with us. Um, guys, please welcome Mr. Nick Blair from uh, Search Factory and Brush Media. How are you getting on, Nick? Yeah, good. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a shame that we couldn't do this face-to-face, but I guess yeah. this is the reality that we live in now, isn't it? <laughs> this is the world that we live in. I've got some amazing relationships I've developed in the last six months with people I have never, ever met. I cannot tell you if they're tall or short, fat or thin, black or white, you know, I've got absolutely no ideas. But um, I guess sometimes, would you agree that that helps with prejudgment of people and actually allows you to sort of just understand someone's character? Yeah, I think, uh, I think so for sure. One of, our, uh, one of my other businesses, Brust Media, we uh, work with a lot of you know, more international clients than we do uh, Australian clients. So we, you know, we've sort of been in this position for a while and I find it amazing that we uh, build big relationships with people we've never met and it's, uh, yeah, it makes a really different perception on how you um, get to know somebody and um, the perceptions that you form of them, that's for sure. For sure. I think it's more content of character, right? Like I'm not in a level of disrespect as I say this, but I've seen certain business people hide behind that nice watch and the fancy suit and the fast car, um, you know, and it, it's, it's a very perceptive thing that they are succeeding and therefore you should want to engage business with them. But suddenly when it becomes nothing but the content of your character and the broadness of your experience, you know, and your ability to serve into a problem that um, a customer is experiencing, it suddenly starts to mean that, you know, I I believe true cream is starting to rise to the top. Um, Yeah, I think it makes for more genuine interactions in some cases. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. Well, today I'm going to do a completely different podcast, right? My first 13 of these, Nick, I felt I've had a similar structure. I'm going to take a little bit more of a back seat on this one. And a big part of that is because you're actually one of the first people I've spoken to that I don't have a relationship with. You know, we're kind of joining this conversation together as strangers in essence today. So what I want to do is, um, is really get to understand Nick, his story and his journey. Um, so I'm going to probe you with a few questions, mate, and I'm going to grab the popcorn and, and take a bit of a back seat on this one, if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And um, yeah, maybe we need to work on developing this relationship further afterwards. I look forward to that. Absolutely. Because, mate, I, I know of your business, I guess, your business's reputation in this circumstance preceded your personal one, because I am very familiar with your business and the brand that it holds, um, you know, here in Australia and the services that you offer. So you decided, like many other young sort of, you know, early 20-year-olds, either in or just about to leave university, to decide to start an IT startup, right? Um, and Or a digital startup. And you did that in the really successful years of 2008 and 2009, where we weren't dealing with a global financial crisis, you know, the world hadn't gone to shit. Um, and I'm sure it was just a walk in the park for you to get started then at that time. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, um, couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it was sort of a matter of circumstance as much as it was, uh, you know, a keen hunger to get out and um, and do my own thing. But uh, yeah, I guess my first startups, uh, you know, follow a similar story to many other entrepreneurs in that they were just a whole bunch of failures for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself and um, two other guys, a, a friend I'd met through university and uh, someone else who we were working with at the same time, uh, found ourselves in a position where our employer was running out of cash uh, from another startup at the time. So we decided that we were going to go and uh, launch our own businesses. And, and, you know, we discussed it previously, how, how great it would be to, to launch our own digital startups and do various things. And, uh, you know, that the opportunity or the timing seemed like, uh, you know, is the right time to go ahead. So mm-hmm. we went and did that. Um, and essentially spent two years, you know, probably starting eight to 10 different projects from, you know, online gaming websites, uh, doing web development, uh, different content-based sites and travel sites and various things that we spent two years uh, losing all our money on and um, chewing through personal loans to try and get working to uh, ultimately get to the end of 2009 and decided that we needed to pack it up. Uh, I think I started doing part-time furniture removals with my dad when we set out into startup land in, uh, you know, I think February or March 2008 and figured I'd only be doing that uh, uh, for a couple of months until we started making all our cash. And then by the end of 2009, when I was doing more days moving furniture while working on my digital startups and running out of money, I realized that it was probably time to pack it up and get a job. So uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty rough couple of years, a pretty hard couple of years going through the slog of trying to, to make things work. And uh, I guess, you know, realizing that probably at that point in time uh, upon reflection, didn't necessarily have the skills that I needed to to get that done. Uh, there, were, there were some good ideas in there. There were some things that I look back upon now and think if I knew what I uh, know now that, uh, you know, maybe there could have been some uh, earlier success there. But uh, at, at the same time, I mean, all those, that's probably the biggest learning period that I ever had in my life that helped me to succeed uh, with future startups. So, mm-hmm. uh yeah, I think it was two years of throwing ourselves in the deep end and learning absolutely as much as we can while everything failed and collapsed around us. And yeah, uh, yeah I ended up leaving there to, to go and get a job as a digital marketing executive at Flight Center. Uh, and, and which, as I'll get into the search factory story, um, you know, proved highly beneficial. But I think one of the reasons why uh, I ended up getting that job in the first place was due to the experience that we'd got from our startup. So, uh, you know, it all kind of, it, it's all the building blocks, I guess, to the next phase of uh, where you end up personally. For sure. And I think it's so difficult sometimes because we're a generation of people that are so ashamed to fail. Our ego is so inflated. And I think it's a social media driven thing in the modern day that it's not okay to fail. So therefore, we will, even in our last day, when you are one cent short of having to go into liquidation, you will, someone will say, how's business going? And you will say, oh, yeah, we're ticking along. You will refuse to say, I'm struggling. And you know that one day when I got my ego out of the way and actually admitted that I was struggling, I was in a startup phase and I wasn't gaining as much traction as I thought I would as quickly as I would. Do you know everybody around me put their hand up and started introducing me to people who could benefit from my services? If you're not willing to display vulnerability, do not be disappointed with the lack of support that the people around you offer. People don't help people who are perfect. Does that make sense? If you're purporting perfect, how do you stand to be helped? So I love the fact that you've been so open with it. 
you failed eight, eight to 10 times fundamentally. But what I want to ask is my question I wrote down is define failure for me. Because you said, oh, we failed eight to 10 times. And I know it's kind of a, a sweeping comment, but d- defining your impression, Nick, what does failure truly mean? I, I think there's different, um, yeah, there's different aspects to it. I mean, from a personal level, financially, obviously, you know, that's something that I consider a failure in a sense that I couldn't support myself with the businesses that I was trying to run. So, uh, you know, I mean, from my perspective, if you reach the point where you can't pay for your rent or help yourself to live and your goal was for the business to fund that, uh, then, you know, then that's one aspect of failure. Uh, but I think there's also many other aspects to it because ultimately, you know, each start and, and as we had numerous different businesses through that period, uh, I think each business has different goals attached to it. And I always associate, um, you know, achieving success or failure in relation to the goals that you have set out for each business. So, uh, you know, they, it may be not financially, it may be growth of, you know, user growth that you needed to achieve through that. It may be a certain lifestyle that you wanted to achieve through that. Um, you know, I think there was, there was different various aspects for those businesses. And, uh, you know, if you launch a business and you can't acquire any users for it or customers, and then, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a financial failure. Um, I mean, that's the, the end result, but, the failure is in user acquisition or, or demand for your product, for example. So, uh, you know, I think there were, as far as failing businesses go, there, there was many different reasons why that each one was a failure. Uh, and I think to some extent, that's what always spurs me to keep moving forward and, and keep going on because, uh, you know, you learn from that one and you go, okay, cool. Well, that failed because we couldn't acquire enough users to use the service. Then now I know that that's what I need to work on for the next one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like failure is, is a shortcoming of the goals that you set for yourself in essence. So failure is a measurement that is originally determined by you, i.e. I'm going to run five kilometers in 25 minutes. And if I do it in 25 minutes and 20 seconds, it doesn't mean that I am, I am a failure. It just means that I have failed to achieve the goal I set out this time. And what I need to go back to the drawing board and evaluate is what do I need to do differently to achieve it next time? So the mistake is not a mistake if I learn from it, but the failure is ultimately falling short of the goals or expectations I had of myself. That's how you define it. Yeah, that's right. And I think, and failing to achieve a goal might, as you said, mean that you've failed uh, to achieve something at that point in time. But if you're fortunate enough, it doesn't mean that you can't reset the goalposts for the next round. Um, I mean, you know, in a business mindset, uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, I, the reason I didn't want to go and get a job, I had to from a financial perspective um, personally, but say you might have a business with a, a profit goal of X and you might not achieve that. I mean, you've failed to achieve that goal that you've set for yourself, but you might have also still still made a, a whole bunch of profit. So uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, failure doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of the world. For sure. No, completely respect that, mate. So to take me through then, for those, for those that don't know, I, I'm fortunate enough to understand, but what is Search Factory? What, what does it do? What value does it deliver to the end user? Um, so Search Factory is a, now now um, known as iProspect Brisbane, uh, is a full-service digital marketing agency. So uh, when I first started the business, uh, the focus was on um, SEO, but uh, very quickly expanded into running paid search campaigns, social media, content development, data and analytics, uh, programmatic media buying, um, full range of services, I guess. Uh, so 
you know, we work with clients uh, like Flight Center, Barbecues Galore, National Storage, uh, Universal Store, um, sort of household household names like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I um I I'd first come across you because we were fortunate enough to also uh, my business ISR training had the exclusive sales training. Um, contract for three years with national storage. So naturally your work was feeding into our work. You were creating prospects or incoming inquiries. And then we were working with their um, call center team to convert those inquiries into sales. Um, So yeah, actually, you know, inherently we're working on fundamentally the same project um, for a while, but yeah, that's where I got a good understanding of how successful your business was, was based on the real quality of the inquiries that were coming through. You know, um, they really were targeting the exact avatar or demographic that, that we were requesting internally. So um, yeah, I can certainly vouch for that. I, I have a, an article here. I was just going through the archives, Nick, and I can see an article when you were being interviewed in 2014. Six years ago, you were asked the question, what is the greatest challenge when it comes to running Search Factory? Your response was, the greatest challenge is balancing such rapid growth. I've seen other agencies lose quality very quickly when under-resourcing their teams. So we have almost been non-stop hiring for the past two years to ensure we always have adequate staff levels. Can I ask you, in hindsight of now having exited Search Factory, what was the greatest challenge in running Search Factory? Um, I would still probably almost say the same thing. Um, I think resourcing for any service-based business is quite a challenge. Uh, it's something that we continually got better and better at. Um, we improved our ability to forecast uh, what we needed from a resourcing perspective, how to uh, look at what would happen if um, you know demand increased or decreased, uh, what which departments you know needed staff. Um, as we added more and more services, it just made everything more and more complex. Uh, but I think ultimately, in a service-based business like Search Factory, your your clients are really paying for somebody's time. Uh, and with the way that we operated, uh, you know, one one of our early um, USPs was around uh, you know month-to-month agreements with our clients. Uh, you know, only thirty days notice, uh, things like that. So uh, yeah, you'd have clients come and go. Um, it was harder to predict uh, workloads at different times. And so I think the biggest challenge for us as a service-based company was around, uh, yeah, predicting and managing resourcing so that uh, you could balance, obviously, profitability with uh, making sure that clients were getting the servicing uh, that they that they needed. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh-huh. um, it's so great to listen to you say that because, in essence, what you're saying is I had to engineer the growth, I had to be confidently um, expecting of it. Because I think so many times you do see businesses that blow up, right? And they go from, say, that one mil to the 10 mil mark organically based on the fact that they've got a great offering to market, but then they actually reach that 10 mil mark sometimes less profitably than the one mil mark because they had never created a system or a structure that was designed to scale at speed. And then what comes with that is a lot of waste, you know, a lot of subsidiary expenses, and often a lot of outsourcing at two to three times the cost of internalizing that skill set in the office, right? Yeah, I mean, a great example of that, uh, that we learned, you know, in the early days is, you know, we started to find that as we were bringing more and more clients on board, we, in some cases, weren't as profitable as we thought we should be. Uh, And, you know, then you start to realize that maybe staff are spending too much time on, uh, some clients and not enough on others. Uh, and 
ultimately the effective cost you know cost per hour is reduced significantly or the revenue per hour is reduced significantly and so you know we implemented time tracking into the business for example and uh you know once the, the staff started using time tracking against clients we could start to see oh hang on you know, there's certain clients who are going to be a lot more demanding with um, their requests or their, you know, their desire for communication with the account manager. Uh, and then you have others, you know, who won't reach out. And so we actually very early on started to see, hang on, some clients are getting over-serviced, some clients are getting under-serviced. And you start to understand uh, and be able to look at those sorts of things in your business it means that you can then start to understand, uh, you know, things like client profitability and, um, you know, who's not getting enough uh, attention, uh, which, which ultimately impacts retention as well. Uh, so there's all these sorts of things that we started to uncover in the business, which, uh, then started to make it operate uh, a lot more smoothly and, and allowed it to scale, uh, before, as you said, you know, before things become a mess as you, as you start to get bigger and bring on board more clients and new staff. Mm. It's amazing, mate. It's good. And there's another comment and one, one other question that came out of this article that I was reading. It said, what is your long-term vision for Search Factory? And your response, Nick, was, our number one priority is maintaining a high standard of work, which will become even more important as we grow. Long-term, we are set on growing our presence in Sydney and Melbourne and including new services in our range to complement the current offering. Do you feel you achieved your long-term vision? Uh, no, in a sense that we had no Sydney and Melbourne footprint. Um, if we compare it to that article, I guess. Uh, so, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, we did have a, a sales guy in Sydney for a while, which didn't work out very well when we found out that he was, uh, signing clients on board and then providing them an invoice with his bank account details on it. But that's, um, <laughs> that's a story for another day. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's how our, uh, our first step into Sydney went. Uh, so we sort of canned that for a bit afterwards and uh, we didn't end up getting to Melbourne. We, we serviced clients in both of those markets. Uh, but I think ultimately the, the real end goal for the business that I always envisioned and, uh, you know, Michael as well, once I brought him on board as a partner, uh, we always envisioned acquisition as the goal for the business. Uh, there's times when I say in a, a 2014 article, it's not something that I would have said in press where we're trying to sign on board clients. Uh, so I think that, you know, the, the acquisition was always the, the goal that we hoped for. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we achieved that. But uh, yeah, as far as Sydney and Melbourne expansion goes, we decided to put the brakes on that. Uh, we certainly did it in expand and improve upon our service uh, offering as well, though. So I uh, know we definitely uh, ticked that box for sure. What I hope everybody who's listening to this takes away from that is bigger doesn't always mean better. Not always. I'm not, I'm not here to discourage people from rapid expansion or from becoming, uh, you know, interstate or international for that matter, you know, but please understand sometimes that it's the tree with the deepest roots that will survive the longest. Um, and too many companies do try to diversify not only their offering, their services, but their locality. And you actually dilute your overall service offering. And you'll find that, you know, you've actually almost become, instead of being everything to everyone, which was your intention, you end up becoming nothing to anyone. So I think be known for something. If you want to be known as the Brisbane-based digital ad specialist, and that's what you want to be known as, focus on that. 
And sometimes being a mile deep and an inch wide is more beneficial than being a mile wide, but only one inch deep. And I think, although maybe you didn't achieve in inverted commas, your goal of dominating Sydney and Melbourne, the only reason you probably wanted to expand was to increase your customer base so that when you were acquired, you had a greater end value, right? Um, which by the sounds of things, you, you did go on and achieve. So I, I want to come back to the question about acquisitions, but just before I do so, um, you've spoken here about your biggest challenge was really resourcing, right? Finding the right talent to continue to expand the business on the back of. So this age-old argument, do you employ attitude or aptitude? Because I naively always said, you know, you, you recruit attitude. You can't teach someone to have desire, but you can teach them how to do their job. But then one of my investors, Andrew Banks, who ran the largest recruitment agency in this country, Morgan and Banks, publicly listed at over a $1 billion valuation, said that is an absolute crock of shit. You could be the nicest man in the world, but if you're a mechanic that does not know how to do an oil change, then you hold no value to my business or my customers. Right, so I kind of it changed my thinking. But what's your opinion on that? Is it attitude or aptitude first? Well, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, recruitment itself is something that, as a business owner, I think most people, if you go and start a business, I feel like a lot of people tend to think I'm a good judge of character, I'm a good judge of personality or skills. You think that you inherently have that as a personal skill, and so you think that hiring is going to be, uh, you know, a really easy job. And after, you know, I had to learn to get after making some um, hiring decisions that maybe didn't fit with the team as well as uh, we would have hoped. I think we had to learn how to become better at hiring staff as well. Uh, And so I think we definitely, in the early days, tended to lean more towards attitude than aptitude. Uh, But as the business progressed and as we started to look for Uh, better talent and people that could help the business to progress. I do think that aptitude became, uh, you know, just as important, if not more important than attitude uh, to some extent. Uh, My, my overall view and opinion of that is that I think it depends to some extent what role you're hiring for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if I'm looking to hire a head of paid media, for example, uh, to lead our team through, uh, you know, a forward thinking view of how Google might um, change their search algorithms, teaching the team, educating them, uh, implementing best practices into the business, then, and it's a, a role that's going to pay a lot of money, then I'm, you know, in my opinion, I think aptitude is almost more important to some extent. Uh, but, you know, we have other lower level, entry level account management roles, things like that where to some extent uh, I do think that attitude maybe is more important than, uh, than aptitude. But uh, yeah, I, I think I've approached different roles with a different view on the type of candidate that we need for them. And I think I try to adapt our hiring processes to suit that to some extent. Amazing, mate. Well, I, um, I respect how busy you are, so I won't, um, I won't shoot your ears off with too many more questions. But I guess the main thing I wanted to learn selfishly, and I, and I would assume many others listening to this will as well, is how does the process of being acquired begin? How is it executed? And ultimately, upon completion, 
um, I've done this myself, right? I've exited three times. I've started growing and then sold my business from the, from the age of 18 to the age of 28. And every time you leave, it's bittersweet for, for me anyway, because you're leaving with pockets full of dough, which is always great, right? At the end of this, or for many of us, we get into business because we want to make a difference in the world and we want to change our life and create a better lifestyle by profiting from the services that we offer, right? But when you're leaving, you're also leaving behind so many memories, so many great customers, so many great colleagues, you know? So can I ask you to go on a five minute ramble for me, mate? How does the idea of becoming acquired begin? Take me all the way through to the journey of the final day you walk out of that office with your little cardboard box of personal belongings. Um, What's the emotion like and how do you now three months after finishing your role as the general manager um, of Search Factory, how do you reflect on all of this? Yeah, so I mean, for, for us, as I said, you know, acquisition was something that I saw as a potential opportunity quite early on. Uh, and the business, to some extent, was shaped around that. Um, the gap in the market for Search Factory was servicing those medium to larger clients in the digital space, uh, particularly with search. A lot of the uh, agencies in Brisbane uh, were very focused on small, uh, you know, $500 to $1,000 a month packaged clients, uh, whereas having had exposure to the larger corporate market, uh, I could see the opportunity for those SOP clients who wanted to spend 10 to 20 grand a month to actually be serviced properly by a good in-house team. And so with that, I saw the opportunity that, big media agencies are going to be moving into this space as more and more uh, money goes into digital. So we always initially had a focus on trying to acquire bigger clients that were attractive to the larger media groups who they were servicing traditional media for. And so that was in 2011 when I started the business. Uh, When we reached 2015, I believe it was, was when um, Dentsu Aegis Network, who uh, own iProspect as one of their digital brands, reached out to us to to have a conversation around um, our appetite to be acquired. And so fortunately, uh, we had started doing a little bit of work for them already in the Brisbane market as they didn't have an, uh, a footprint on the ground here. Um, so for those who don't know, iProspect is kind of a global um, digital network as part of the Dentsu group. And they essentially grow through acquisition uh, to most extent and rebrand. And so we'd started doing a little bit of work servicing them uh, off the back of our existing reputation. Uh, and they approached us along with five or six other agencies in Brisbane to discuss um, our potential appetite to be acquired and uh, go into further detail to see how we fit with their business. And so there's probably about from our initial conversation through to signing the papers and, um, and starting our earnout was probably about a nine month period. So from our end, there was maybe seven or eight stakeholders that we needed to meet with in the Dentsu group from CFOs to um, country managers to different brand managers, um, product managers, things like that, who needed to go through and look at us for different reasons and see whether we ticked each of their boxes for uh, our fit with their brand and their business. And fortunately, because we'd been set up to and resourced ourselves to service big clients, uh, we found that the fit was was perfect uh, with the Dentsu group and the way that they wanted to grow or integrate us into the business us and them all agreed it was a good fit Uh, we had been approached previously by other uh, potential acquirers for the groups um, other holding companies or roll-ups into to public um, things and and things like that but they never felt quite like a good fit for us as well 
And so once we went through these conversations with the denser group, uh, we, 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 each step of the way we were waiting for a roadblock because uh, we were kind of thinking, you know, this seems almost too perfect to fit to some extent. Uh, we, we talked through, you know, the deal, um, the makeup of the deal, how the earnout would work, um, the multiples on uh, the payments and, and things like that. And as each step of the way, uh, anything we pushed back to or we came to agree on uh, worked for us. And so, we were waiting for something to, to look bad and it never did. So uh, ultimately for us, we spoke to a few other people who'd been acquired by the same group and, and everybody had had good, you know, relatively good experiences. So uh, for us, they, they ticked all the right boxes and, uh, you know, we obviously wanted to be acquired as a goal anyway. And so uh, we, in June 2016, essentially reached a point where we signed on the dotted line and uh, went into a four-year earnout. So, you know, a four-year earnout for a lot of people sounds like a long time and it sounded like a long time for us. Uh, that's how Dentsu do their acquisitions. Uh, some of them are a bit longer, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately it, it came to the point where we had to say, you know, we'll get an upfront payment and then we had four years to, to make as much um, profit, I guess, as we could uh, within the group. And so it ca- comes came to a matter of us backing ourselves to be able to, uh, you know, achieve what we thought were going to be, uh, you know, good growth over the next four years to maximize uh, the outcome for us. So, uh, you know, there, w- there was a, a bit of uh, nervousness, but also a lot of confidence in ourselves to be able to uh, achieve the outcome that we could over those four years. And, and we essentially had growth every year uh, in those four years at the same time as, I guess, quite a number of other agencies in, in the market maybe didn't do quite as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the key things for us as part of the decision too was that we could see in this space that the big media agencies were starting to take over digital budgets and control the digital landscape and the independent agencies like we were who were previously seen as the specialists in digital uh, were starting to get pushed out. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why we saw the fact that we, you know, we wanted to become part of that as opposed to be squashed by that, um, which was ultimately our sort of prediction for the, the industry. Can't beat them, join them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we could see that we used, you know, in the early days we used to pitch against other independent agencies when it came to a search budget. And then we started pitching against the Mediacom and, um, you know, Dentsu and, and uh, agencies like that who, you know, we have, we have no hope against in some cases. Uh, so, yeah. That's why becoming part of that group, uh, you know, I think was also a highly valuable move for us and something, you know, and a brand and market presence that we could leverage as well to help grow the business. And so, yeah, I mean, to the earnout went as well as we could hope upon reflection. Uh, it certainly came with, uh, you know, challenges here and there. And uh, I think having a business partner and um, Michael, you know, with him joining the business, we both war gms caps at different times over the four years i think having if you were doing a four hour four year it would be a pretty taxing time on yourself personally uh but having the two of us there you know that we we swapped hats at different times as needed and uh you know had a, had a really good relationship so that uh you know when someone you know was suffering from a bit of stress from uh you know various aspects of um the business or, or things like that we could we could switch it up and I think that helped to uh, navigate it with the, the best possible outcome for both of us, which was, which was awesome. Amazing. And so, amazing. yeah. And I mean, so that, that finished, oh, sorry. 
I'm just going to say, take, take me into as it starts to approach, right? So a bit like your wedding day or your firstborn or whatever, you know, it's four months, three months, two months, one month until the earn out period is going to be completed. Um, how do you start to feel now? Like how, how's all this feeling? How are you starting to think about all of this now? Yeah, well, I felt like I had two, two different milestones because December 2019 was when the earnout finished. Um, so we backdated to the start of 2016, so uh, for the, the four-year period. So December 2019 was the end of the earnout. And so as far as I was concerned, you know, the, the main goal was reaching December 2019. And so I spent the last few, you know, I spent the last six months being so specific about trying to make sure that performance for every month was as good as possible. And right up until uh, the, the last couple of weeks, you know, the first couple of weeks of December, I was still trying to make sure we were maximizing, you know, all the profit that we could and that we, nothing <laughs> would go bad and that, you know, it was, it was the home, you know, the final stretch running to home, um, home base. And so right up and didn't really take my foot off the pedal until, uh, you know, we reached the second or third week of December and then, reached the point where I thought at this point, there's nothing more that I can do to, uh, you know, help with discern out. And then, um, from that period, just really enjoyed the last week or two leading up to Christmas with the team. Uh, you know, probably had more drinks with them than normal. Uh, you know, had a really good time and just felt like a, a weight that we'd had on our shoulders for that four years was, um, you know, starting to lift. And, and we knew at that point that, you know, there wasn't too much that could derail it and that the outcome was going to be great. So really leading up to the end of December, uh, that was celebration uh, to most extent. It felt, um, yeah, it felt really good and it was awesome. And, you know, look, we'd had some really key team members who'd been with, uh, with us on that entire journey or for most of it. And, you know, it was a celebration for all of us together as a team. Uh, so we reached that, but then came back to January and, uh, you know, I still maintained the GM role until June 30. So, I mean we entered into the COVID scenario. So, you know, my final six months in the business was, uh, you know, at one point having to discuss reduced hours for team members as we navigated COVID, uh, you know, getting everybody to work from home, uh, doing all these sorts of things when I guess I was entering, uh, you know, finished the earnout and I was entering this period thinking, now I can really just work on the handover to the new GM. Yeah. I, I have a pretty, have a pretty chill six months. <laughs> Yeah. And it's cut it started at the opposite of oh, we reached March and it became the exact opposite of that. Uh so I reached you know the last couple of months was spent just working from home and uh sped up the transition to the new GM a little bit earlier than uh, anticipated. It kind of forced that to happen, uh, which was good from a workload perspective for me. Uh it ultimately meant that well, literally my last day in the business after nine years of you know founding it from a spare room at my parents' house going through this entire journey. Uh, the Dentsu offices were, you know, fully locked down uh, over this period. And so my last day of the office was literally me walking in, getting a, with my backpack, throwing a handful of things into an empty office. And, you know, we sh the office space is shared with other Dentsu brands too. So you're yeah. talking like a 120 people office that's just completely bare, me walking over into the back corner. <laughs> throwing a few bits and pieces in it, 
and yeah. looking around the office and then walking out, um, hopping in the lift and walking out. So, oh, wow, it's a little bit unceremonious, mate. You kind of, it almost feels more like somebody who's being let go from their job than somebody who <laughs> successfully managed to, to scale and exit. You know, I obviously for, for myself, it was the team did some amazing things. They kind of clap you out of the door. Uh, you know, everybody's giving you the appreciation for all you've done for the business. But um, I guess what matters in all, all of this is the internal satisfaction that you were able to create from executing your plan, um, as opposed to necessarily the pats on the backs, the hugs, the kisses and the smiles on the way out. Yeah, I mean, there was was a sense of pride and accomplishment even, you know, as I left on my own. Uh, You know, it was cool to to look at the office that we're in, like even that that we're in at that point in time where all the staff are and what the business had become, uh, you know, as I was walking out the door to look at that compared to where it started. Uh, You know, there was definitely a... Yeah, a sense of achievement that, and um, you know, something that I, that I could be proud of. That I know is that business that I started is going to continue on for years to come. Uh, yeah. You know, under another brand. So, you know, I think that that, that did exist. But uh, yeah, it was also you know, it was a, a bit bittersweet. You know, we used to every quarter we'd have like a big night with the team, and we'd always do some really fun activities and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I always that's how I envisioned my departure to be. So uh, it was the exact opposite of that, but. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the nature of the, the weird 2020 that we're living in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those things that will leave, live deep in your memory because of it. So, mate, I appreciate I've already taken five minutes longer than we suggested I would. I think your story is incredible. It's inspiring. And I think what should be the biggest takeaways from it is persistence beats resistance. You have to be resilient in this space. You know, you're listening to a man um, in Nick that has failed more times than most of you have been willing to try so far. Um, and it's also about understanding that if long as you have a clear enough goal and you have enough drive and determination to never take your eyes away from it, then your possibilities quite literally are endless. And to listen to somebody who still at a tender age, I mean, you may not feel it anymore. The bones might be a bit stiffer than they used to be, but it's still a very tender age to have successfully exited um, one of our state's largest digital agencies um, is something I hope that you do pat yourself on, on the back for and something that I know to you know, a 29-year-old man like myself gives me an abundance of inspiration. Um, so thank you for proving what's possible. And um, we look forward to seeing Bross Media um, and all the great things that it's going to do moving forward as well. Yeah, thanks. And I, um, yeah, I hope there's, there's at least one person that listens to this and uh, has an idea or is going through a rough time that knows that they just need to keep at it and, uh, you know, they can, they can achieve the same thing. Yes. I think we'll finish it up with the Muhammad Ali quote, which was that a champion is not judged on how hard they fall. A champion is judged by how quickly they are able to stand back up. Couldn't yeah. agree more. I think it's very relative. Well, Nick, God bless you, mate. Thank you so much for your time today. And on behalf of myself, uh, Business News Australia, and everybody in the Young Entrepreneurs community, mate, keep kicking goals. And uh, we look forward to seeing what's next for you and your business. Yeah, thanks for having me. You take care, my friend. All the best now. Bye-bye. This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital work from anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360 degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business.